Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week, we bring you the Dewing Grain market report, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues while sampling a beer, Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's market report. Welcome to the market report. What follows is my thoughts or gut instincts of what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decisions to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing 10th of February 2020. Right, what should we start with? I think we will talk a bit about oilseed rape, because Ian's just given me all the lowdown on it, and he ran on and on for ages about all the things that could have affected it, and about how palm oil has gone up 7% in two days, and India and Malaysia and Pakistan all falling out, and the, and the palm oil stocks being lower, and all sorts of stuff. So I, I got a bit confused, I'm not going to bother you with it. In short, old crop, or this year's uh, stock Oilseed rape value, if you were selling it for the next month, is 322x farm. So it's kind of hanging around the prices we've been talking about for quite a while. The uh, pound has had a weak period, which is compensated for some of the drop in the futures price, but it's basically sitting there and not moving very much. New crop, X farm, harvest value, 310. One of the things Ian talked about was the coronavirus. I think that is very much worthy of a of a conversation in amongst my ramblings. So let's touch on that now. My view is that um, the figures are understated. And this morning we hear the news that the doctor that uh, that waved the flag to say there's a virus going around has, has died of it. And he was the ripe old age of 34. So that kind of uh, makes makes you a bit more nervous, I think, in the morning. So my view is that the virus is going to spread significantly around the world. It really, what we need is some accurate figures on death rates. Um, Do you believe the Chinese figures? No. They've they've got a long history of misstating uh, crop production figures on cereals where they say they've got loads, in fact they've had a big drought, and so on, vice versa. So it looks like, according to the stated Chinese results, that there's a 2% death rate, which is pretty minimal and less than actually flu, or a normal flu gives us. So that's why I feel it doesn't quite stack up to have such an alarmist reaction when there's a smaller percentage of people dying. But um, if that's the case, the dynamic effect on industry is, well, it's, it's going to be the biggest... Uh, contributor to to uh, improving the climate change issue because of the the amount of energy not being used in China. Their uh, predicted six percent annual growth is going to be at best two percent. With what they've done, they've shut down. We've spoken to the Chinese port where we 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 actually import some Chinese organic material for some of our customers. And the ports are closed because there's not anybody working. So if people are sitting in their houses, not driving their cars to wherever they drive them to in China, or getting on the planes to fly to wherever they fly to, there's an enormous amount of energy not being used. Oil prices and gas prices initially dropped like a stone, as did stock prices. We've kind of all gone, oh, that's a bit of a shock. That was a bit overstated. Let's not worry about it. I personally don't think it's all over. I think we've got some more uh, falling in prices to go. 
because the knock-on effect, the lack of production in China, will cease to supply factories in Europe. And, and on the radio this morning, they were talking about car plants in Europe having to cease uh, production because they're not getting certain parts they get from the Wuhan province. So, with that uh, uh, apocalyptic uh, underview, I, I think that potentially could still come back to haunt the grain market. Uh, it, it may restrict movement of grain, it may just distort things a bit. It's a bit... You can't predict it. Certainly, the, the, the market drop, nobody expected it to drop that much in that shorter time. And all right, it's recovered a diddy bit from its from its free fall, but it dropped ten pounds in a very short space, and no one in the grain trade saw that coming. And it was purely down to the virus. Now we're all thinking, oh, it's not really that important. We're seeing a recovery, but if we get some alarmist figures out, I think we will see some more of a slide. So that is a threat, completely out of left field that none of us saw coming. So let's just be aware of that as a as a bit of a shocker and keep our eyes open to it. In terms of actual fundamental supply and demand, you know, Norfolk looks great, actually. We've got Storm Kira coming, but it's been dry, it's been warm, and and some of the wheat crops and some of the barley crops look great. They're green, they're growing, the the, the soil temperature's picking up, the air temperature's been good, a couple of frosty nights has helped, not not hindered. Yeah, things look really good over here, and and I I hope in other parts of the country it's, it's the same. I popped over to Ireland, as usual, they're a bit wet, but they also looked fairly green and pleasant. So I think the mildness of the autumn and, and, and the growth in crops is, the potential is perhaps a little better than our worst fears. So that's a little bit of sentiment to the sell side as well. Just to come to prices, feed barley 125x. I've, we've had that conversation and each year I, I tend to say the same thing for the last 20 weeks of the year saying they ain't going to go up, so get on with selling it. But... Um, you know, you can pick your timing if you like, give yourself something to do when it gets a bit wet again. But I personally would ditch it. Uh, and as far as wheat is concerned, that, well, it had a, a old crop wheat has been dragged up because farmers haven't been selling it and because of the, the potential of new crop not being a big enough crop. That's fine, but at some point... The people who say they're not going to sell it, they'll carry into new crop, will sell it. They, they, not everybody has a store that they can do that. It's a, it's a great bluff. You can play up till about April, May time, but then you have to ditch it. So at some point in May, the price of old crop and the price of new crop are going to pull apart. And if you can store it or you can find a place where you can keep it, there will be a reward for that. If you can't, then I'm afraid the old crop value is going to drop or it's going to drop relative to new crop. So if you haven't sold of any either, the one that you sell first, without any doubt, is all of your old crop. Current values, X-Farm, if you're selling it for March, feed wheat, 147. If you're selling it for May, 149. If you're selling it for July, probably 152 or 3, something like that. Um, so there is a half-decent price. So 153, let's say, for July. If you compare that with a new crop price for November, currently 155. So the reason why it's not worth carrying it is it's just not worth the hassle for for two pounds a ton. You haven't got the money in the bank, and you haven't got a clean shed. When the ACCS man comes round, you've got to actually clean the 
mice poo and rat poo off your wheat or whatever you've got to do whereas if the clean shed is there it's it's just a much easier life so yeah i, I it's got to pull out at least another seven eight pounds a ton for people to generally consider it with that underlying kind of uh, potential of all of us dying from the from the coronavirus and the underlying uh, miseries of, of supply and demand possibly being a bit more supply which is great for tonnage but not great for price uh, we're judged by price. I feel the the market is vulnerable unless I see something really heavy to convince me otherwise. So uh, we shall see. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. If you're enjoying the Doing Grain podcast and want to see it go from strength to strength, then please do give us a five-star rating and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. Also, do recommend us to friends and family and share the podcast on social media so everyone hears about it. If you want to sponsor the podcast, we offer very competitive rates. Just get in touch with hello at tinshedproductions.co.uk. And now it's time for Farm Chat. So this week we have, we have brought back Lizzie Emmett. Lizzie, welcome back. Thank you. I've come back to be grilled again. Well, you know, the thing is when we put the mics down last time, we kept running on and on and on for hours. There's so much more stuff. But yeah, I, I guess the first question I've got to ask you is, you know, with your, with your group, which had the crazy uh, acronym, what was, their, what, was, what was your little gang's feedback? I think the feedback was very positive, which I was really, I was a little bit apprehensive to know what they thought, mm-hmm. but no, it was, it was really positive. And uh, we, we got together just after the podcast for like a Christmas meal. So that okay. was the first and time. And just, just give feedback. us the, what well, it was the UHWPPCCD. <laughs> what group, does it stand it? for again? Yeah. So it's the Upper Wensum Cluster Farm Group or on Twitter with just Wensum Farmers. Yeah, great. So there's lots of subjects I can go to and, I, and I'm going to pick out one that's turtle doves. Tell me about turtle doves okay so um one of our main projects that we have with the wenson farmers is we are trying to really encourage breeding pairs of turtle doves um so the turtle doves have seen a 98 percent decline since um, 1970 so you know one of the strongest declines in our farmland bird species so it's a it's a real species that's under threat what habitat do turtle doves need so when they they migrate over from sort of West Africa, so when okay. they come over here, they're um, looking for quite sort of untidy areas of the farm, so kind of like scrubby, uh, very, very dense and uh, wide, tall hedges that have got... Um, their, their nests are actually quite flimsy, so they need a really dense, thick hedge to actually help hold their nest up. Okay. Um, and then they also want access to water because they're granivores and they want the habitat and a food source uh, and, and ideally like a pond all within 300 metres. That's why they're quite particular about where they live. I see. Is it the woman turtle dove that picks the house? <laughs> no, it's both. So they pair up. So that usually the male will come first and they'll start calling. They'll call for a female and then they'll pair up and then they'll choose their site. Okay. And who's the rubbish nest builder then? Are they both? Well, I think I think it's a collective responsibility there. So but they, they they do try their absolute hardest, and I'm very very fond of turtle dove. I think okay. they're very very pretty as well. well. I'm being critical, but you know maybe a bit bit of uh, improved nest building would be, mean more of them come back. Well, that is a little bit harsh because they do fly five thousand kilometres, and I think they should get they should get a medal for that journey. Yeah, no, fair fair play. What, what about? I mean, is it is it our habitat that's diminished the numbers or? 
is, is something happening to them in Africa? Is that a possibility? Yeah, so it's a really interesting point. So it's actually um, a, a number of things that's actually the decline. So firstly, it's um, habitat over where they overwinter, so West Africa, that's sort of the river valleys of Gambia and Senegal, um, and sort of food availability during that time. They also migrate through the Sahara Desert, so there are fatalities on the way when they migrate. It's finding the right food sources as they're migrating through as well. And then, you know, I think most people are aware that they are a species that are still shot in, in Spain and France, for example. And then they, they do that 5,000-kilometre journey, and then they've got to try and find the right site um, where we are here uh, and try and breed and find the right food and the right habitat before then in September they'll go all the yeah. way back again. It's a, I mean, there, there's, there's a the point about the, the Spanish and the French shooting them. Is that, is that like, not something that... Is, is there not joined up thinking of the, the, you know, the various bird societies of different countries saying, look, hang on a minute, this species is in decline, you lot are shooting it, would you mind not? Or are they? Yeah, um, from, from my understanding at the moment, there isn't this, we do not think on the same lines. And that's, okay. what, that's part of the problem. So they still depend, you know, they should really stop shooting them um, and, and stop shooting in certain numbers. Um, but that, at the moment, it's still happening. Um, and at the moment, we're, we're really worried about the fact that they're coming over here you know, it's, it's a lack of numbers actually making it all the way to here. And then they've got to find a successful site. They've got to breed and then mm. they've got to take at least a few youngsters back with them to be able to then survive the journey all the way back. But what we're doing with the group is we're trying to really encourage the bit we can control, which is the bit when they come here. Yeah. Um, and the way that we're Obviously. doing that is uh, working in cooperation with Operation Turtle Dove. And we're providing them a tailored mix, a mix that they find utterly delicious. And then we're using camera traps to... To capture them on feeding sites um, and last summer we are absolutely delighted to say we had eight breeding pairs of okay. turtle dove whereas previously you had unrecorded i think in the local area it was probably about four but um with with, okay. with our help of uh, the wenson valley bird watching group we could we could definitely confirm that there was eight breeding pairs which is fantastic. okay so so hopefully this summer we're looking at Exactly. So we start um, we start talking about feeding and getting all the sites ready and the camera traps around sort of April, May time. And then that's when we'll start to see the first ones come over. They'll be quite tired from the journey. They'll be wanting lots of food, lots of energy rich seeds. Um, and as they come over, then we want to have the right setup so that they settle and they find a pair and then fingers crossed. And, and you're doing that. You're you're you know uh, with the farmers yeah exactly so i assist the farmers um i deliver the food and then we've got um species experts as well that we can um, identify the habitat and see if we can enhance some of the areas that also links then into the pond restoration because the more ponds we restore the more habitat the more water resources for those turtle doves so it kind of all links together but the farmers are working really hard they put the feed out once a week mm-hmm. and they're checking the camera traps sending the images to me and then we're joined with the Wenson Valley bird watching group to see how we get and on and you have to be a bit bossy with them to make sure they do it is that <laughs> are they a little bit like Actually, they're re- it's one of the things I don't boss them about with <laughs> because they're, they, I've got a few that really have a soft spot for turtle doves. You know, they've grown up with turtle doves. They always used to have them in the yard. And when you see them on the camera trap that they're actually there and mm. that they're feeding, it's an extra motivation yeah, motiv- to do yeah. it. Yeah, Whereas if you're just saying, oh, yeah, just go and feed and hope by actually having the photos and them sitting around the table with a cup of tea going, wow, I think it actually motivates them even more. Okay, so what what things are you bossy about with them? 
Not I think I'm quite bossy about the cover crops. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's so smooth, isn't it? What about cover crops? So cover crops is something that, I mean, last time I talked um, quite a bit about sort of the water quality side of things and, and how we're trying to prom- um, improve water quality in the Wensum. And the cover cropping very nicely uh, comes into that. So we're looking to improve our soil. We're looking to Im- improve the soil microbiodiversity. And we're trying to, again, uh, reduce those nitrates from leaching out of um, the sort of the topsoil and subsoil yeah. areas. Can, can I just, I mean, in, in the time since we met, there was, there's been an expose on television about the sewage companies, the big water companies, having, they've been caught out basically, oops, the sewage went in the river. I oh, will just pay the fine because it's cheaper than actually dealing with the with the product. So that that must kind of strengthen the case of proof that it isn't just farmers' fault. Yeah, so we had a, a really good first group meeting back on, um, in January where mm. we had had all of my farmers and we were doing sort of mind maps on about what the problems are. I was getting feedback from them and I really wanted to hear more from them. And we got onto this topic of sewage treatment works. And at the moment, because it, it essentially needs industry and um, regula- regulation coming mm. into it, and that needs to come from the government, mm-hmm. until the government enforces that level of regulation and then they find the funding... Um, I don't think we're going to see a massive change in the next few no. years. Um, and, and as I, I don't know whether I mentioned this last time, but the sewage treatment works along the Wentz and where we work are currently meeting their phosphate targets. Oh, Would you believe it? So they're meeting their targets so they can confirm that back to industry. But obviously in the, gr- in the actual grand scheme of things, they're, they're contributing a huge amount of pollution. Yeah. Sorry. So, so that, that, I mean, I, I was conscious of that when it, came out on 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 tv so so back to the actual cover cropping you know the the what influence are you having on that are you are you dictating what should go on or what how does it work no I never dictate no I, I can't dictate no so I'm working with them so the idea I've heard a lot from farmers that they'll go to certain meetings whether that be an AHGB monitor meeting or something and they struggle to know how they can bring it back to their own farm business so one of the things we're trying to achieve with the group is certain trials so that they can actually feel like it's happening on their soil type it's happening with their business with their machinery and as a collective so I'll help them organize all the different trials um, and um, organise with the seed merchants and, and usually we do get a discounted rate which helps um, so when in last autumn we organised a certain set of trials and then we all went to have a look at them they were all drilled differently at different dates with different equipment some of them had N some of them didn't so it's that's that's the advantage is that we're able then to discuss and challenge each other over okay. what's, what's the best and desiccation techniques um, when you're going to desiccate them things like that um, which is an invaluable resource to then the group. Mm, okay, and, and I mean you're chairing this, I assume. Or- so what the general way it works is that um, essentially we have a we have a steering group, and I sort of provide lots of ideas to the steering group, and then it's because it is truly farmer led, they get to sort of select the ideas they think are most appropriate, and then we kind of go to the whole group of the farmers, and that's what was great about the January meeting okay. is we were able to sit with all the farmers, and then it is really about getting their thoughts. So all of the thing, all the projects we work on it's sort of teasing out which ones they want to be committed to and which ones they feel are important to their business or to the local environment i mean in in a meeting i mean we've experienced lots of farmers meeting over the years you have some people who are very um, vocal and some people who are not very vocal you have some very quiet very intelligent people who aren't kind of pushy so in a meeting environment um they perhaps 
would be the best contributor actually on certain subjects and you they, they're not going to say it in a public place there's always the you know the good old empty vessel making too much noise about something irrelevant so you, you've got how do you bring that those really do you bring them up and say well actually i'm aware of within the group without using a name this is that do you do that Are yeah you... i think that's a really interesting point and this is it basically comes back to the whole actual idea of, of a cluster group you know a, a group of farmers working together at the start i'd say our group meetings were quite diplomatic i'd say mm. that people would listen to the speakers and we'd have a few thoughts and then they'd take them home we've got to the point now where the farmers know each other so well they all know me quite well that we've got to the point where they're all so comfortable with each other they're actually starting to challenge each other now and we're starting to get more discussion and so with the cover crop meeting that we had last year that was really the first time I really started to to observe that and and you can assist them by you know I know that they've got certain ideas hidden under there and I can sort of in a group environment say well you know what what do you what do you think about this or and it's it's just sort of being quite diplomatic and understanding how the group works and the sort of there are underlying some people are reluctant to say they don't want an argument they don't like confrontation and therefore someone's made a statement and they actually disagree with that statement and teasing out their view is going to create that you know so it is a delicate one isn't it because it is a delicate one and obviously you've got to you've got to think back to what is the goal here and the goal from that meeting may be that I really want them to think about trialing cover crops so mm. in that group environment there may be a few that feel a bit more comfortable about speaking their opinion and there may be a few that won't be feeling comfortable about speaking their opinion and then that's where my job is people skills it's following up with them afterwards it's popping round, and it's making sure that they feel like they got all the information that they need and that if there's anything that they didn't feel they were quite understanding that's then my job to be able to follow up with them and that's the beauty of the one-to-one time mm. there's the social benefit of all this isn't there yeah and I think you know going back to the kind of the drawing board the role of the group you know everybody this is a really challenging time for farms at the moment and I see that in my farmers I see how intimidated they feel you know next year be EPS is going to start to be phased out. This is a really challenging time. And I think my my job is basically is really to hone down on what are the priorities for your business? What are the personal objectives that you've got for your business? And, and like I said earlier, they may achieve that in a group setting or they may achieve that actually by more of the one-to-one time. But it's mm. my job really is making sure that they feel like they're building relationships with the farms in the group because that is a huge resource to them mm. whether that be machinery sharing or different ideas and and if that's not possible then it's up to me to be able to provide extra resources or extra time to be able to help and facilitate in in other things so other social benefits within within what you do yeah, so um, we've been very lucky to um, work a lot with social scientists who have been pushing really hard at this un- greater understanding on social capital because it's actually quite undervalued. We talk a lot about financial capital and natural capital, um, but actually, you know, farmers do work in a very isolated manner, um, you know, f- just one particular farm to one particular farm. And what this is trying to extract and understand is the real true value of working together as a team. Not only do you get a enhanced wildlife benefit because you're looking at a much greater landscape area but the relationships built between farmer to farmer and advisor to farmer it creates this great 
greater understanding. It creates these trial opportunities. It creates this um, motivation to do more, to be more competitive with your farmers. So that's been really interesting is understanding this value of social capital. And we've had a couple of reports done. But I think there is a huge, tremendous feel-good factor from the farmers being part of such a movement. Mm -hmm. I I, I quite believe it. And also, you know, and I didn't hear one of my farmers say this until he was kind of pushed by somebody else, but he said, I might not see anybody all day. And I think I'm starting to really understand that there's this complex layer of mixes Mm. of of this social benefit, but, you know, is also linking the farmers to farmer as well, because they've got ideas they want to talk about. I mean, I've got guys that have got very difficult soil types and they're neighbouring and they have the exact same problem. So why not wouldn't they want to join up and and brainstorm a little bit and, and maybe they'll borrow the drill because that drill worked a little bit better that year. And I think the future is going to be about more collaborative thinking. Well, this is this is again t- touched on at the the, the the first speaker at the Century Conference was a Scottish guy, and he was talking about collaboration and cooperation. And you know, in in the back of my cynical old head, I was saying, well, at the moment, I'm afraid farmers don't need to cooperate because they're fundamentally well off enough not to. Only when they get into a position of of actually being hard up will they will they actually turn around and start thinking right we got to I need other people to help me make my point here um, which a lot of people won't stomach this that particular statement from me but but the reality is cooperatives thrived in the 50s and 60s in the 70s onwards we've had plenty of money in the in the arable sector but collaboration starting with with farm to farm identical problems people actually talking to each other people recognizing the the, the mental issue of being on your own all day because it's not like going to school and saying, going standing next to someone saying, hello, my name's Bill. You can't kind of wander up to people aimlessly and introduce yourself. It just doesn't work like that, does it? Yeah, and also <coughs> the, there's the huge benefit of having somebody who is employed to your benefit. Mm. Because, you know, you know, when I work with my farmers, I'm not selling anything. I'm not selling a service. I'm not, I'm not trying to get anything. It is to their agenda. Um, and I think it appeals to people to have somebody that's working to you, your local priorities. Yeah, it's a good starting your... place for people to work together. Absolutely. Because at some point, there's going to be a, need to be a big collective farmers working together. Mm. Um, do, do you think that within that, you, you may need a bit... Because there is going to be some tough times. Everyone keeps saying... It's going to be tough. I mean, it isn't tough yet because we haven't left yet and we're still getting BPS. So in December, maybe we'll see the whatever it means to, to exports and imports and we will then start seeing less money coming in. And so we know it's coming, um, but you, you can't really say how you're going to feel about it until you get there, can you? Do you think you're going to need a, an element of kind of almost uh, psychology, psychological training in observation to see the signs of people who are getting unable to cope with it, don't talk to many people, insular kind of... Do you think you'll have a job to do in that? No, I don't, because at the end of the day, now I feel like we're getting to the point where I have really good relationships with them. And my job is about building trust, and I feel like we've got that, that relationship now. And, and they're very open with me. And I, I, some of them, I know a lot about their finances. And, mm. and the thing that sort of strikes me is that when you look at um, you know, reports and charts about the income after you know, when BPS is taken out, it's, it's going to be really difficult. And I think what we've got to do as an industry is we've got to push that that little margin is pushed all across the supply chain. It's not just the farmers that take the brunt of it. It is everybody along the uh, chain. Easier said than done. If, if you allow 
major businesses to control the industry, I'm afraid they'll keep every bit they've got. Uh, that that that's not a dig at any specific in company because everyone feels wounded when I say that. But you know, the, the, the supermarkets will not give away their profit margin unless they absolutely have to. Um, and and right the way down the chain, the farmers have given away lots of the opportunity to value add. They haven't built flour mills. They haven't got, you know, like the Danish. Uh, uh, farmers many moons ago they set up cooperatives their their industry is run by cooperatives and they've been very efficient as cooperatives as have the french and in the end the the uk farmer ignored that they went down their own little route and and they were quite happy to sell to the highest bidder and british sugar they were offered the, the, the 12 factories for a bargain price and in classic farmer style they tried to negotiate a cheaper price now they'll say it's different to that but the reality is they would they tried to knock the price down and they went, really? Turned around to Gary Weston, who went, I'll pay you the full price, absolutely, and paid it back in three years. But my point being, they couldn't see, they always thought they were being done. Yeah, the, the, the mentality of cooperation, it, it comes from adversity, I think. And, and I, think that, I, think what, I think what you're doing is, is fantastic groundwork, but true collaboration between all farmers is not going to come until later. But all of the groundwork of guys like you, uh, is going to be vital because you've already got connection between lots of people working together. Yeah, and I think you've mentioned some really uh, interesting and quite complex issues and things that I don't really have control over and I'm never going to have control over. What we can control is the element of people want to look after the environment and I truly believe that the government and people want to look after, cherish and pay farmers to do that. And I think what we're going to have to do going forward is make sure that we are in the best possible position to get into this elm, this new environmental to land management scheme. And if you motivate the farmers to do it, like being motivated by the turtle dove photographs, then that is that, that there's actually a double positive, isn't there? Yeah, and they, they're getting a huge amount of support because I'm collating all of this data on bird surveying, pond restoration, turtle mm. doves, cover cropping, so that they can just you know, slide into this new scheme. But I think it is about farmers going forward. It's going to be about promoting what we're good at Mm. and almost sort of negotiating and selling what we're good at because Mm. we are custodians of the environment and we are are fantastic at it. And my gang are fantastic at it. And we've got areas where, you know, we've got, I mean, just the other day, we had a whole uh, whole wild bird strip that had 40 linnets, 20 yellowhams, brilliant. And we're going to have to be better at selling that and marketing that to make sure that we are getting the reward that we deserve for that yeah it's it's you're right it's about understanding the 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 or perceiving what actually is required by the general public which is what the government's ultimately going to going to be dancing to what is their demand the fact they don't even know about yellow hammers do they let's face it marketing it saying this is what we're doing this they might go oh we'll make sure yellow hammers get some money then so selling that concept but more importantly, listening to... I mean, at the moment, it feels like the government are saying, let's plant trees. Yeah, there's a huge emphasis towards tree planting and also carbon sequestration. Lazy, lazy thinking, isn't it? Let's face it. Well, it's tricky because the pe- all the people I speak to about carbon sequestration, um, there's a lot of sort of carbon auditing and, and carbon offsetting going on, which is great. But it's 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 a it's quite a big commitment for a farmer to put down, you know, a, a huge forty hectare field into woodland. Mm. That's a huge landscape change. So I think what we're going to be focusing on more is good payment options. For example, Savills let us know that one of the 
highest paying options in Elm is going to be scrub in hedgerows. So yeah, if, scrub scrub is like, like just letting rewilding. We're talking about there. No, I wouldn't class it as rewilding because okay, so, scrub can be managed. You know, okay. you can cut it in rotation. Scrub and bramble, although it is very t- untidy, it provides tremendous environmental benefit, and that is, is due to be one of the highest paying options in the in the future environmental land management scheme. So, and we've got guys in our in our group that already are practicing some areas of that, and then I've got other guys that are incredibly crisp tidy farms but it's just getting them into the right position where that they can best implement that into their business and then that's the best way yeah i mean scrub is a scrub is an emotive issue for any farmer isn't it i mean you 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 know you think nettles ragwort and brambles oh you know however we're going to make that feel viable again in the future to produce something but is the future going to be producing that's that's the yeah, thing one, one day one day we will run out of land to produce enough food fact i i mean the the interesting thing is so we had a, a presentation from emily norton of savills and you know that the payment opportunities for scrub and bramble is it who wouldn't go for that versus producing a incredibly difficult commodity crop no 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 that, that my, my point is that, that this this strategy is short i mean let's plant trees or let's you know it's it's a five-year quick let's get it let's, let's do something to tick the box all the vegans love us whatever whatever they're, they're trying to achieve is short term there's no strategic long-term strategy that anyone can say is 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 sensible or viable i think my perspective is that the environment needs to be looked after absolutely everybody's that everyone's interest is that and i don't think that there's going to be farms all across the country that are going to just every single one is going to put their whole farm down to environmental stewardship i don't think that will happen unless the unless the subsidy system dictates that it really is the most viable option by a long stretch. And everyone will just look at each other and go, oh, we'll plant that then. Do you know what I'm really hoping? I'm, this is what I'm really hoping. And, and I reported back on payment methodologies through ADAS, but straight to DEFRA on this. I'm hoping and I think that they may involve some more options that can fit better into an arable rotation. For example, semi-permanent grasslands, mm-hmm. legume fallows. So actually, you know, not totally rely on the subsidy system, no. but that fit into an arable rotation and that fit into a better, more holistic and sustainable farm approach. That would be great. That would be fantastic for, for and control of all sorts of terrible things like black grass. You know, yeah, yeah absolutely. That that is is that sounds so not good. what I'm hoping is not every option is just pollen and nectar, wild bird mix, woodland. I'm hoping that there will be some more integrated approaches and more integrated options that will fit better into an arable system going forward that will will improve their business anyway. Now we 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 got we're getting to the end of our end of our time. Is there any more anywhere real your group want you to mention something of note? N- not not massively. I think I think we've sort of touched on everything, but I think what I would just say to to your listeners is is have a real think about whether there is a a group near you um that you could get involved with um then I I promise you you receive tremendous benefit. Today I'm going to pretend I'm on dry February and not have the beer thing because I'd be perfectly blunt. I don't feel like one. Do you mind not having a beer? Lizzie. That's okay. It's, yes, yeah. it's all I know right. you're a bit of a beer drinker. But, you know. <laughs> Heavy drinker. And um, yeah. Anyway, thank you. A second. I, I still feel like there's 110 things to talk about. So uh, next time we see you, I'm sure we'll have. Um, you've been extended in your UWCFG group, so I'm, I'm sure that it'll still be rolling on, and maybe some spring off groups will be coming along as well. So I, I'm also looking forward to listening to you at the Holcomb Farming Conference. That'd be exciting. There'll be no pressure from the back of the room. So good luck with that. And thank you you again for coming in. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. 
Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released. Dew and Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, we can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263 731 550 or email info at uk or follow us on Twitter. We are at Grain. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by Tinshed Productions in conjunction with East Coast Design Studio.